This week on Writers Inc. Over the years has pitched me so many ideas, but to me, it's always about the characters. You know, it's it's about who are these people? Why do we want to go on a journey with them? How do they feel? How do they make us feel? And that's the most important part of this journey I'm on in television and movies is creating characters that people want to watch. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories. All have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. I want to congratulate Zach on your Kickstarter. Uh, you're north of 17 <laughs> million now, right? 17 million and counting. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing here. Some author with a bunch of N's in his name. I was like, way to go, Zach. In <laughs> <laughs> in NFT? No, not one of those. My bad. No. <laughs> I bet you think it should have been NFT. It probably, uh, I don't know, man. He, he's doing pretty good without NFTs right now. I think he's doing all right. For, for those of you who have no idea what these guys are talking about, they're, <laughs> they're referring to Brandon Sanderson. Uh, and the funny thing is, like, I got like, he's, he's really good at marketing this stuff. So I, I got an email from him that was like horribly depressing. He made it sound like he was dying of cancer or something in this email. And like to find out what was going on, you had to click on a link and watch a YouTube video. So I clicked on the link and the video started going and he starts talking and I got like maybe a minute into it and like I've got the attention span of, you know, a squirrel. So like I just, I tuned out, clicked off, went on to something else. And then I got an email from one of these, these guys over here telling me that he was at like, what, upwards of 16 or 17 million or something. 17 million when I emailed you. Yeah, it was 18.6 yeah. when I pulled it up about an hour ago. Um, so props to, to Brandon for being able to, to do that and pull that off through Kickstarter. That is, that is insane. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Like he's definitely, um, he's, he's my favorite fantasy author and he's someone I follow pretty closely. Um, I don't read a lot of fantasy these days, but I just, he's just so interesting because he is very forward thinking and, um, and also is a great teacher. Like, you know, he loves to teach and stuff, but like you're saying, he's brilliant with his marketing. He's so prolific. I mean, he writes, I don't know how he writes as many books as he does. Cause some of them are like big old doorstops, you know? Um, but, but, and yeah, now he's got these basically four books that he secret projects that he just wrote between all this other stuff that he's been doing for his publishers and all that. And went through this Kickstarter. And um, I also, I better, he's going to be mad at me if I don't give him props, but uh, T.W. Piperbrook wanted me to say that he pointed the story out to me, even though I saw it from like four other people before he sent it to me. But I had to give him props anyway. But uh, but really interesting stuff. And um, I'm usually a little weird about Kickstarters for authors. Like I think it's kind of I think it's kind of weird to kickstart something that's already finished. If that makes sense, like because it's it feels like a Kickstarter. Like I think of it in terms of like, you know, um, tech and games where people like need the money to get up and running on something. So it always felt kind of weird to do it for a book, but it's really, it's, he's taken it a little bit, a step further. Like this almost feels like 
this almost feels like something that could have been on Patreon or something. Like, I don't know. But, like, I think using Kickstarter as a delivery method uh, really worked out here. So, Do you guys know who Mike Sullivan is? Michael Sullivan? I other, do, yeah. Other author, yeah. I, I, I met him at, um, oh, God, it was a Writer's Digest conference um, years back, I guess about 2015, 2016 or something. And he was doing quite a few of these. So that was the first time I've ever even heard of, of this particular model. Um, but honestly, like it, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm surprised that we don't see like a lot of the bigger name authors kind of digging into this, especially with you know special release stuff, you know like numbered editions and signed editions and, and things like that. You know any of these big name authors could do it if they wanted to, and it's it's direct to public. So I, I think you know a lot of them are just very comfortable with the traditional model and just being able to you know, hand that book off and knowing that it's going to eventually get out there. They don't want to dabble in this. Um, but it's obviously extremely lucrative, um, and I, I do see, I think more of these are going to start coming up, you know, as the younger generations, people that are used to dealing with Kickstarter, you know, become authors, become publishers, you know, get into that industry. I think we're going to see more and more of it because it's just another way to, to get out there. I think there's a couple things of note here. Uh, if you want to, we'll have the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it was uh, four secret novels. So there's this mis built-in mystery right there. Like, you don't even know, you don't even know what it is. Uh, the I think the campaign target was like one million, <laughs> so he's way <laughs> beyond that. He's got like twenty eight days to go or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, and he may have intentionally lowballed that because anytime you overfund, it looks amazing. But even still, here's the thing though, JD, to your to your question about why aren't more people doing this? Um, running a successful Kickstarter campaign is extremely difficult. Uh, and it's that. a science. And, and whether, whether Brandon is doing this, whether he has a team doing it for him, it doesn't matter. They know what they're doing. And, and I think there are a lot of, um, like, it doesn't necessarily, it's like in the NFT space, there have been several celebrity NFT projects that have flopped. And it's just, just because it's an NFT with a celebrity name tied to it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to buy into it. So I think there's a, a psychological strategy here on Kickstarter that makes all the difference in the world. And Sanderson's got it locked in. Well, I'm honestly, I, I don't really go on Kickstarter. I've, I've browsed it a couple of times when it first came out and a few times in between. Um, but I mean, if anything, if you're somebody like me who doesn't use it, I think just study this entire process, you know, as an author that, that Brandon did from start to finish, you know, the, the email that went out, the video, you know, the, the language that was actually used in the Kickstarter itself, just tear that apart, take some notes. Um, yeah, like Jay just mentioned, like he is obviously doing this right. Like this is the way that you do it. Um, you know, his last one, where did the, the last one end up? That was four or five million too, right? And it was, it was five or six X of what the target yeah, was too. Like I, I, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, he's, he's obviously perfected this, this formula um, and he can probably top it again with the next one. Yeah, to, to your point, I wanted to say one more thing before we move on. Like, you were talking about why more big name authors aren't doing it. And I think there is like some resistance and some barriers there beyond even what Jay mentioned. I mean, it is definitely a science to run in one of these. I mean, I had a friend who uh, they raised, they raised $20,000 to record an album. And I mean, she told me how much work it was and it's, it's a lot of work. But I think the other thing is, is I think you really have to have a team to do this because I mean, there's like actual physical merch and stuff being fulfilled. I mean, there's a lot of different steps that, you know, because he's doing these like swag boxes and stuff. And I could see a lot of people just not wanting to get everything in place you need to do to be able to deliver on all these different rewards and stuff like Brandon's doing. But like I said, Brandon's really forward thinking, isn't afraid to do things like this. So 
Um, yeah, it's really cool to see. I, I don't care how lazy you are when you look at $17, $18 million yeah. as, the, as the return. It, no, you're worth, right. Yeah. That's worth getting off the couch. I mean, the only person in my life that I can think of that would be open to this would be would be James Patterson because he just loves doing out-of-the-box weird marketing stuff. Yeah. Um, but to, to flip that, you know, like a big portion of the books coming out of Little Brown, his publisher, are his. Like he's got an entire team working behind him. Um, so like he couldn't, you know, he'd be basically stealing from one pocket and, and you know, to fund another. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't be about the money for him. He would, he would do it just simply because it would be something different, something fun. Um, but it would be hurtful on the other side of that. And I think that's, you know, from a big name author standpoint, I think that would be the biggest hurdle. They, they can't afford to take the money out of the, the other side and, and hurt those, those people, that portion of the industry in order to dabble in something different like this. Um, but, you know, for, for people like us, you know, people like, you know, Brandon or, you know, just authors that are jumping back and forth, I, I, I think it's worth a shot just to see what would, what would happen. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, in, in other publishing news, besides Sanderson-related, we wanted to give a shout-out to a couple of Writers, Inc. alum because the Bram Stoker Award uh, nominations came out recently. And uh, for Novel, we've got uh, two former guests in there. We have Grady Hendricks for the Final Girl Support Group. And we have Chuck Wendig for the Book of Accidents. Uh, so those two gentlemen are up for superior achievement in a novel. Um, there are a, a lot more people on, on the list. Um, and it's definitely worth checking out. It's always, it's always fun to see who, who makes it uh, to those nominations. Um, there's everything from poetry to anthology. Uh, so if you're in the Horror Writers Association or you're curious about the awards, uh, definitely check that out. Um, did you guys see the news from Amazon? They're closing yes. all, yeah. They're closing all their their physical store presence, and, and you guys actually went to one, right? I think I remember. We, yeah, we went to one of the uh, when we were in Seattle. We went to one of the four stars and above stores, which is one of the things they announced they're closing. Mm -hmm. um, it was it, it was an interesting concept, but I never saw one anywhere else. Uh, but then the bigger news for our is, is they're closing all their bookstores. Oh. So they had opened one here in Nashville pretty recently, and I, I never I haven't gone. Maybe I should go check it out now. Um, but yeah, kind of interesting to see that they're closing down all their retail space. Uh, you know, I read, an, I think it might have been an NPR article, but th there was some article about this announcement. And what was odd was that the reasoning that, that Amazon gave was that uh, the bookstores were not a destination spot. And I was like, really? Because in my life, bookstores are always a destination spot. Like, I'm going for a book. Like, I think what they were trying to say is, like, people were going to the Amazon bookstores and browsing and not purchasing anything. And I, and I, and I just found that so odd. Like, I, I would have to think, and I would love to hear our independent booksellers chime in here, I would have to think that that's because those bookstores don't create the kind of community that local independent bookstores do. Well, I mean, from my standpoint, like, I would walk in just as a curiosity. You know, hey, an Amazon store. I need to see what the, you know what's going on in there, and I, I'm guessing that they got a lot of that kind of foot traffic. Whereas, like the bookstore, you know, that you're talking about, you know, or like in my world, you know, like back when I went to the mall, you know, like I would see the bookstore, and like I would, I, I would always go straight there. Like I would like to, ha you know, I would always hang out in there. I'd browse in there. Like that was my my you know my my anchor at every mall or every shopping experience that I, I had when I was a kid. Um, I don't know that Amazon had that. I think it was more of a curiosity factor. Um, but you know, I'd, I'd love to see the numbers behind it. I mean, because obviously they, they were using you know the, the online presence to be able to figure out what to put in these physical stores and things like that. I mean, they they know what's selling, um, and they can stock those shelves pretty pretty easily. So like for them to close those stores, you know, I'm, I'm just curious. I would love to see the, the numbers behind it. And I doubt they'll ever release that. I wonder if this is also a place where uh, maybe big data can be a bit misleading, because people don't make rational choices. 
like uh, you know on, on paper it might it might make sense for Amazon to think wow we can we can take all of our aggregate aggregate data from the online marketplace and then we can stock the shelves based on what we know people want and it didn't work and and, and I wonder if there's just sort of this it's not a rational thing like uh, for for me, even now, like a lot of the reasons I go to bookstores aren't necessarily the books. Like there might be a coffee yeah. shop, there might be a talk, I was gonna bring that up. there might be a library, um, a, a bookstore uh, employee who I always talk to who who knows a genre that I like. Like it's it's not just the book, and I wonder if the big data kind of led them astray on that one. Could be, yeah. yeah again, yeah, that's why I'd, I'd love to see it. I'd love to steer the rationale behind all of it. It's a cool experiment. Yeah. So, uh, what are you guys working on right now? I'm, I'm down at Disney World, <laughs> so if I sound weird, that's why. I'm getting over COVID still, so my voice isn't quite back, and I'm at Disney. Um, so I'm trying to, to knock out my, my couple thousand words sitting here and looking outside, and it's, it's sunny, and I'm getting, my, my wife is literally texting me videos of my daughter playing on a, a water slide at the pool for like the very first time in her life, and like, I'm, I'm like, why the hell am I sitting here? At yeah, why, why are you sitting there? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, the other piece of this is we've got a, another cabin that we were supposed to close on last night, and like the, the people that are selling it are going to Europe tomorrow, um, and the underwriter on this deal is still requesting information from both sides trying to get this thing together, so like, I can't leave my my communication portal at this point until this is finalized and like some, they're going to send um, somebody from a title company like to our hotel room to sign all this paperwork as soon as it's done so I'm, I'm kind of stuck but um, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out there um, I got Patterson and I are working on something that's really cool and he called me last night um, when I was on the right before I got on the plane um, and just gave me a, a totally different idea out of left field to, to take this particular story and it's like the, the, the guy just you know constantly surprises me um, and just you know, it, it, it was it, uh, anyway. I just can't wait to get to working on it. Which is well, one of the just other reasons I mean, just tell us the idea. We won't tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I wish I could go there. It's just it's 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 weird riffing with somebody like that. I mean, it's it's almost like um, I mean, you were in a band before, you know, like you sit down with your guitar and you got your bass player next to you, and somebody kind of drum you know strums a chord, and you know they they back that up with something different. That that's almost what it feels like on on some of these phone calls. But I mean, doing it with somebody like that is just a it's totally other level. Yeah, that's super cool. Here here's the difference. Jay was never be able to was never able to get on an airplane and be like, oh hold on, I gotta I can't board yet. Axel Rose is calling. I gotta take this. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I I actually took the call on on the plane and like um, I I didn't get to, my wife and daughter took an earlier flight because I had to stay back to wire some money out for this closing. Um, so like the people next to me like they saw the the name ringing on my phone you know because like when a phone rings on an airplane like you just and you're like look James up. Patterson how you but doing? He, he was just staring at me and, and you know, like they they knew who it was I mean it was pretty obvious and I I just awesome. I took the call anyway. Jimmy was like was. Jimmy what's up man? <laughs> 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 Pretty much. Jimmy P. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cra crazy life. Yeah, your life sucks. You're sitting in a hotel room at Disney World, but you know, okay. <laughs> I'm just messing. Well, other than the Kickstarter, what are you working on, Bahana? Uh, well, same old, same old for me. I'm working on. I'm I'm almost through, almost through uh, Dead South. I should have it to my editor in the next week and a half or so, which I'm stoked about. Just got the cover. Cover looks great, so I'm really excited about that. Um, I'm also working on an editing project for some friends of ours that I'm doing. And uh, the really cool thing that happened this week was I got to go to an outdoor hockey game, which was awesome. Went to the, uh, I think I mentioned on the podcast last week I was going, but Saturday night, my, my buddy Matt and his family drove up from Tampa last or, on Friday. and Or I guess, yeah, last Friday is a recording, but it'll be almost a week and a half. But anyways, 
And, uh, yeah, I went to an outdoor game in Nashville. It was awesome. Uh, it was like 39 degrees outside, which was perfect hockey weather. A little cold because we were pretty high up in the stands, but um, it was awesome. I was forced into watching a couple of country music concerts, which I wasn't totally into. Um, but uh, but it was Wait, it was fun. They did. Don't, they did don't really you live in Nashville? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, here's the thing about Nashville: is there's like a lot of really good bands and musicians that live here that aren't country too. I mean, there's a lot that they could have gone, but I understand why they do it like that. You know, okay. they're not going to go get like you know the Black Keys or Jack White or something when they can get Miranda Lambert and uh, Dirks Bentley, who were the ones that played. So, but it was fine. It was it was all it was a lot of fun and. Um, it was it was it was it was a blast. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time, so that's one I can check off the bucket list. So nice, sixty-eight thousand people there. Yeah, nice. Yeah, it was awesome. Nice. Uh, a so. somewhat related uh, experience. I uh, finished watching eighteen eighty-three on Paramount Plus, starring uh, Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. And uh, oh, I was like, "Where's this going?" Yeah, <laughs> did you watch it outside in the cold? Like, what? <laughs> uh, two two very prominent Nashville country musicians. I won't say anything about it other than that if you are a father with a daughter, uh, this is your trigger warning. <laughs> it's it's really really good, but it's also uh, it's pretty intense. But it was so well done. So uh, I watched that this week, and I've also been working behind the scenes on a couple of events. So we. Uh, we have several events for 2022. I feel like the pandemic is kind of uh, sliding more into an endemic stage and that people are a little more willing to travel. Um, and so they've been working behind the scenes on a lot of that stuff. So that's been fun. Yeah. So we'll, I'm sure we'll announce more on that later. Yeah. So. Yeah. We'll Plus, have that coming up. Tim McGraw, super nice dude. I had a, I had a 30 minute conversation with him and had no idea who it was. <laughs> so I sold him a bunch of stuff while I worked at the music store and didn't know who it was until he handed me his black Amex. I, I'm not making this up. I had a very <laughs> similar experience. Uh, I, I was petting his dog for about 15 minutes and talking to him and didn't had no idea who he was. And, oh, that's cool. And, that's I, and I didn't know until he left. Like I didn't even know the entire time who I was talking to. Yeah, I would have known if Faith was there, but like <laughs> I, I, I might have known more who it was. But yeah, he had like a ball cap on, but he was like the. He probably really appreciated that I didn't know who he was yeah. and, and and just had a regular conversation with him. But he was a super sweet guy. It's so. been a long I, time I, since I lived in Nashville. Uh, J, JD probably, you know, played on one of his records. Here we go. <laughs> no, I never met those. I was just, just going to point out, like, back in the day when I, I did hang out with a lot of those kind of celebrities, like, if they were traveling by themselves, like, nope, yeah, they rarely got recognized. It was always when they had the big, you know, entourage around them that, that people, you know, realized who, who that person was. You know, even somebody like Tim McGraw, like everybody's just used to seeing him with a cowboy hat on, so he puts a ball cap on, and all of a sudden, he's a totally different dude. Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing too about Nashville is that so many people here are musicians; they just leave other musicians alone because they're like, "I can do what you do," type of thing. <laughs> so they don't they don't make a big deal about celebrities around here for the most part. So, anyways, all right. Well, hey, we get a little something special. Uh, we're calling this our little March Madness giveaway. Uh, our wonderful sponsors, Kobo, is giving us an e-reader, a Clara HD to give away to one lucky listener. So here's how it's gonna work. All you have to do uh, is go to the Writers Inc. Uh, website and leave a comment on any of the March episodes and just tell us what you love about Kobo. And we will do a random draw from everyone who comments. Uh, we'll pull a random name and you're gonna get a Clara HD Kobo e-reader for free. Uh, so it's why we love our sponsors. Uh, Tara and her team are amazing. Um, if you are getting ready to publish a book, and this book is going to go wide. You've got to get your, your Kobo account. And you can do that at KoboWritingLife.com. So uh, make sure you go and sign up today. 
And if you want to become a patron of the podcast and get in on our monthly Q&A episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash writers inc podcast, which brings us to our guest for the week, JD. All right, this one's going to be fun. Uh, we've got Scott Steindorf coming on. He's a, a film producer, television and film. Um, he's been out in Hollywood um, in, in that world for a while now. Um, got a pretty cool backstory, too, as far as how he, he got into that. Um, one of the, my, my favorite movies that he, he did uh, was Lincoln Lawyer um, with Matthew McConaughey. That's, that's what, I've seen that so many different times. And I just watched it again, like, maybe two months ago. And, like, and it still holds up. I forget what year it came out. But, like, it's just it, that, all, everything about that movie is just fantastic. Um, but right now he's got Station Eleven on HBO Max. Um, and this is something that he started a number of years back. They started production, I believe, right before the pandemic, the, you know, the real-life pandemic started. Um, so this is, this is going to be interesting. Um, here he is, Scott Steindorf. Uh, so I think that the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, were you at all freaked out uh, when the pandemic hit while you were working on Station Eleven? Well, we started Station Eleven before the pandemic. Right. We were filming before the pandemic. And I think one of the first cases of, of COVID was in Chicago. Um, and nobody really thought about it as far as our cast and crew until the end of filming in Chicago. And then we moved to LA, which was already planned. And then the, you know, COVID started really hitting. But we we finished the first two episodes and some shots of the third episode um, before the pandemic hit. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, my son texted me and said, Dad, the pandemic, what's going to happen? I said, we should be okay in about two weeks. <laughs> so obviously I didn't predict that one right. Um, and so we were sh shut down by the pandemic for about seven or eight months and then Yes, yeah, so we were affected by it. Our pandemic show shut down by a pandemic. <laughs> how did you, how did you bring everything back uh, after that long of a of a gap in production? Well, we moved the production to Toronto because there was difficulty with COVID in Chicago. Um, I mean, we we kept working during that time. And we were all a very tight team. And so it didn't, I, I mean, it affected us, but it didn't affect us. So we just all worked hard and worked through it. Obviously filming uh, this last year in, in the heaviest part of the pandemic was difficult um, on set. And so it's a new world out there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know that you're friends with JD, and uh, and he told me that this this particular project took a long time from the time you acquired the rights until until you finished it. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what you had to go through to to make that happen? Well, I don't know if it was a long time. Every project is different. You just never know. You know, everybody does a project and thinks, "Oh, I'm going to be filming in 90 days." Um, I read the book before it came out as a manuscript. I read it in one sitting 
I immediately the next day made a deal with the agent, took it off the market. And that was in 2014, I believe. And, and then I had a lot of interest and it just, yes, it took time and regime changes at a studio. And, and then Patrick Somerville came in to meet me about another project and he knew I had that book and we started talking creatively and he knew exactly how to, how to make this. So. Wow. Uh, did you have any, any formal or informal conversations with Emily St. John Mandel about the direction of the show, or did you sort of have the creative freedom to take it where you wanted to go? Well, we kept her in the loop. Like I've done a lot of book adaptations over the years and I always keep the authors involved and she's been a champion of the project. She was very open. She was in, involved. I mean, we had, Patrick had conversations with her because she had ideas in the book that he took to another level and he wanted to make sure she was comfortable with it. All of us did. So she was great to work with. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know that one of the, uh, this sort of, this, the book, the novel sort of became a a, a new modern classic, especially in the post-apocalyptic genre. It was something very, very new and that it wasn't uh, gloomy and doomy uh, necessarily in in most of the ways that the genre had presented before. And I think a lot of that's anchored in these very uh, emotionally deep characters. Uh, Can you talk about uh, your challenges or or, uh, obstacles in bringing that to the small screen? Well, I think... You know, what drew me to the material was it was about Shakespeare and a traveling group. And I had studied for two years in high school Shakespeare with a with a, a group outside of high school. And so that was dear to my heart. And it also was very hopeful. And and so Patrick Somerville and the reason why we got along so well and we get along so well is he digs into the emotional spine of the characters. You know, everybody over the years has pitched me so many ideas, but to me, it's always about the characters. You know, it's, it's about who are these people? Why do we want to go on a journey with them? How do they feel? How do they make us feel? And that's the most important part of this journey I'm on in television and movies is creating characters that people want to watch. Is, is that, uh, does that happen in the writing in the casting in the performance, uh, some element of all of those? It happens in all of those, but it has to happen in the writing first and foremost. And so many writers get caught up in what well, this plot, you know, this great plot and, and things that really work are not about plot. They're about the characters inside the plot. Why do we want to watch them? Why do we want to follow them? What, how do we relate to them? How do they make us feel? So I think the most important journey for me is is emotions and feelings and learning how to write those how to create characters that are emotionally evolved 
Hmm. And it's not easy. And it's not that it's becoming more common because the shows that are really working and the movies that are really working are about characters like that. Hmm. Are there particular techniques or approaches that, that you learned from or that you've uh, sort of uh, tuned in over the years to, to get to that emotional core? I mean, I've had to do a lot of work myself. I'm a very highly sensitive person. And I actually teach at Arizona State University a class on feelings and art. And to me, the process is fourfold. It's first, you have to understand how to identify the feelings, how to process the feelings, how to understand the feelings, and how to express the feelings. And I think every writer needs to be able to understand how they feel in order and what are the feelings, because the more emotion or, or, or the more you, you make me feel, the chances of your show or movie getting made are much greater. And actors want to play those kind of characters. They want to play fully dimensional characters. And what does that mean? They have emotional lives. They have backstories to their emotions. They have fears. They have insecurities. They have all these, you know, like in Station Eleven, Jeevan has some insecurities and, and there's some levity to them. There's some, like, how's he going to handle this crisis? And so... It's, it's the most important thing mm. for me as a producer do, and as a writer. Yeah. Do you harvest, uh, maybe that's not a, a great word, but do you use any of your own life experience in shaping these characters to create that resonance? Sure. Yeah. Are there, are there particular times of your life or situations that you, that you find yourself going to more frequently? Well, I tend not to put too much of myself in characters. I did that in the beginning. I think what we need to do is be able to create characters and create these lives of these characters based on some of our emotional experiences. But I don't want too much of Scott in a story because it's, you know, that's, it, it may work in Rocky. It may work in s certain movies and TV shows, but I, I think you need to create really unique lives of these characters. Mm. Uh, yeah, part of the reason I, I was curious about that is that you you took a, a pretty unconventional path to to being a producer. Uh, if I have your your bio right, you were a skier, a real estate developer. You worked at Caesar's Palace, and it wasn't until 1998 when you started Stone Village Productions. So can you talk a little bit about that period of your life and how you ended up doing what you're doing today? Well, I was on the U.S. ski team, which was, and I was doing freestyle skiing, so I was dancing on skis, doing aerials, and it was a very creative thing for me. I started writing when I was 11. And I also was in theater in high school. And it was, I, I went to, to school to study theater at Arizona State University. And my dad was in the real estate business in Scottsdale, Arizona. And he said, you know, don't just go into theater 
that's a hard life, also study business. And then after my you know, fourth year of college, I started doing real estate and making money and got married and had kids. And, and so that's how I got into the real estate business. But my love was, was still entertainment. And I ended up going to Vegas um, almost 25 years ago, I guess, 26 years ago. And I ended up doing entertainment projects with real estate at Caesars Palace, the forum shops, you know, creating talking statues, doing all this creative work there. And I ended up getting the job to write um, the EFX show, which was a $65 million show at MGM. And that's really what helped me to build a career here. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit about that moment, how, how you got that opportunity? I, they had already started the show and it wasn't working and they wanted to change the show. And I had written a script about magic um, that never got made, but I had sold the script three times and at that time for a lot of money. And they had read that script and they asked me what I thought of the show. And I pitched my version of the show, which was really my spiritual journey in life as a boy growing up and what I dreamed and aspired to do. And, and they let me write the show and it ran for seven years. It worked. Wow. Was that the more than it was a hit? Yeah. Yeah. Was that the moment you felt like, okay, this is, this is what I'm meant to do. Was that uh, compared to the other activities and, and professions you had prior? Yes. Yeah. But I mean, what I really wanted to do is I, I did go to New York and I wanted to write Broadway shows. And, and at that time in the late 1990s, um, Broadway was, 10 shows, you know, and there wasn't all the theaters and it wasn't, so it was very limited. And when I finished a show in Vegas, same thing, they had, you know, a few Cirque shows and there was not a lot of, now it's, you know, and I want to get back into the theater and musicals because it's just expanding, you know, into a whole new world. So mm. I'm excited to, there's just so much I want to do, but, you know, as writers and producers, we have to kind of focus on what is it we're going to focus on, you know, what's the world. And, and so it's, I'm able to play for a living and I'm very happy. I'm very fortunate, but I've also had my ups and downs in this course. So. Well, the, the focus and the play, uh, the, the flip side to that is that you have to get the work done. So can yeah. you take us into your creative process a little bit when you're writing? Uh, do you have a, a space, a time, a, a method that you use? I read a lot of books. I probably, during, co I mean, since I was in high school, I, I've read at least two books a week. And, and I try to read three books a week and I, whatever area I'm going into to write or produce, I tend to get books on, really research it. 
I, I just research and really think through things. You know, as writers, we have those times where we want to just crush it, right? Let's start writing. Today, and maybe it's because I'm older, is that I want to take my time and really understand and really let it breathe and and do 20 drafts, you know, and really get the best out of these characters and stories. Mm. Well, Station Eleven is is magnificent. It's one of the, the most beautiful productions I've ever seen. I would love to know some of the uh in some of the topics or areas that you went deep on research for for this project well i think patrick somerville is a genius and we talked a lot about emotions and feelings in the in the beginning and he definitely delivered you know he created these characters and he went in deep into their lives and entire lives really understanding who these people were, how they would react to the, you know, what was happening in the story, the dangers, the pitfalls, but also trying to have that hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't want it to be a typical dystopian story where it's the end of the world. We wanted it to be, okay, all this shit has happened. Now what? How do we make the best of it? And that's what it is about. And it just happened to us in this world, right? Where, you know, we had this horrendous pandemic that affected a lot of people. Um, people lost lives, family members, jobs, businesses, terrible. But how do we take a look at that and try to move on and keep putting two, you know, our feet moving and, and try to have some hope in this world. And I, I really believe we achieved that. It's, it's definitely the best thing I've ever been involved with. I'm very, very proud of it. Um, it just got released overseas to rave reviews and super excited about the rest of the world seeing it, so. I, I know from being a fan of the post-apocalyptic dystopian genre that critics will often uh, point to the scientific areas as far as, you know, what, what is realistic, what is not. Um, how did you walk that line between telling the story and, not, and maybe not being so concerned with some of the, the real granular details of what the science was, was about? Well, we didn't want it to be about the pandemic. And when I read the book, I didn't think it was about, that wasn't the big focus. It just happens that she wrote this intuitively and all of that happened. So, you know, people always ask, well, did you change it because of the pandemic? No, we didn't change anything because of the pandemic. The source material had been written five years before the pandemic. So, you know, it's, it's a science of emotions. They keep, make me feel, make me feel, make me feel. You know, it gets down to that. If, if you engage in the characters, you know, the plot and, and the big events are secondary to evoking emotions and feelings. Awesome. 
You're, you're such a multifaceted guy. Uh, when I came across this, I, I thought I definitely want to ask you about it. Can you talk a little bit about higher frequency and what you're doing with that? Well, we're, because of my Vegas experiences, we're expanding into building attractions and live shows with art, with, you know, we're, we're doing a project called Psychedelic City, which is not about just psychedelics. Psychedelics is the definition is bending consciousness, bending reality. And so we're, I'm studying excessively, you know, consciousness and what makes us tick. And, and so that's a, a, for, you know, we're working on a TV show, attractions, you know, live shows. And that's what higher frequency is really focused on. Excellent. Well, uh, maybe as we wrap up, I have one final question for you. And I, I apologize if you're tired of answering this already, but I know it's on a lot of fans' minds. Anything else in the Station Eleven world on the horizon? Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't... I don't know how to answer that, <laughs> but I guess you got the answer by my answer. So, <laughs> well, I have to go to uh, to uh, Zach first on this because uh, Station Eleven is his favorite book. So, Zach, thoughts to open the conversation? Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, this is a great interview. Um, as you said, this is my favorite book and, um, you know, I, I immediately turned you on to the TV show once it, once it came out and, uh, yeah, it was, I'll tell you one thing that was really interesting about hearing this interview was I often joke with people about how surreal it was when the, when COVID started, uh, to be writing post-apocalyptic books. And it was, it was just really interesting to be doing that day in and day out still, while this pandemic was growing around us. And I can't imagine if I was filming <laughs> something <laughs> and had all these visuals and all this stuff going on. And while that's going on, like I'm sure that had to be a very surreal uh, experience uh, for Scott and for his team. And, uh, but this was a fantastic interview. I'll tell you one of the big takeaways for me was, um, you know, we, uh, uh, I know Jay, and this, this a long time ago. You know, you and I really kind of um, we we really put our flag down about you know, plot and pl how important plot. And I, not to say we ever discounted char character or said one or the other, but I think we put a lot of focus into plot. And then over time, that changed, and um, and really started focusing more on character and stuff like that, which is a big thing I've been doing for the last couple of years now. Is really a lot of focus into character. And it was interesting to hear Scott talk about that. And when he looks at projects, you know, he's not really the plot isn't really what catches them. It's really what the characters. And I feel like that really came across in Station Eleven because there were just so many good characters in that show. And you could tell that they put like in the book, they're the same way. But you could tell that they that uh, Scott's attention to that really came through in the series. Um, did he mention, I know he mentioned that he read the manuscript and he optioned it, you know, before the book came out. Um, did he mention how he actually got a hold of the manuscript? He, he didn't, did he? I don't recall if he did. I don't think he did. 
Yeah, because that um, I, I had that happen with Dracul and it happened with Fourth Monkey. Both of those were, were bought um, before the, the actual publisher came on board. Um, I don't think we've talked about this before, but there's people in Hollywood called scouts um, that basically do that. They, they get manuscripts either directly from authors, they get them from publishers when the editors have them sitting on their desk, things like that. Anything that they feel is, is probably going to be you know, film worthy um, or television series worthy, it ends up in the scouts' hands. And they're usually the ones that create all the hype. So like the film producers, the studios, um, they, they, those, those are the people they actually listen to. Um, so most likely this book was floating around. A couple of the scouts probably had it in advance. Scott got word of that and you know, he got a, a copy of it. Um, you know, so it's pretty rare for, um, for somebody to actually sit down and read an entire book, but that's kind of how you, you sneak into that world. Um, the other thing that he mentioned was the time frame, and I thought it was funny because, you know, like in my mind, it's a long time. He's, he optioned in 2014, it's out, you know, came out in 2021. He didn't seem to feel that that was a very long time. Seven years in, in my life is a very long time, but, you know, the truth is in Hollywood, you know, if you talk to anybody that's had something made, almost everybody is like a decade. You know, so he, he's right, you know, from, from start to finish. These things take a, a long time. Um, the production too itself, like I, I, I know, um, you know, like a couple of the things that got shut down during the pandemic. Um, and I think Scott was just able to pivot very well to be able to just keep going. Because um, a lot of the, the biggest problems happened with sets. Like if they had a big set that they weren't actually using, it, they, that studio just starts hemorrhaging money. Um, and Scott filmed a lot of stuff on location. So I think that, that, that may have helped them too. I want to ask you a question, JD. I'm, I'm curious about, like, and this will just be kind of an opinion thing for you, but, um, like, I know, uh, you know, jo Joanna had an interview recently with Johnny B. Truant, and they were talking about getting stuff to the screen and all that, and uh, he was talking a lot about just how they have such a big backlist, like, once they sold one thing, they were kind of able to keep pitching other things. But I'm curious, like, do you think that because they're so – there's such a desperate need for content now because of all these streaming services and stuff. Like, do you think that that will have any effect on some of these timelines getting shortened for things to get made? Uh, I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's really tough to say. I, I think from their standpoint, one of the things, I, I heard that interview too, um, that one of the things that I latched onto that I've heard in the past is, you know, a lot of these people tend to work in groups. You know, a producer has a certain writer that they like to work with, they have a certain showrunner they like to work with, a certain star they like to work with. Um, because they've worked with them before, they know that it's, you know, they're a good person or they're a good fit for their particular little group. Um, and that's kind of what Johnny, I think, was, was getting into. You know, he's sort of fallen into that, that group. You know, like he's, he's got back product, now he's got people that have, have noticed that back product, he's got something in production. Those same people are going to go back to that well if everything goes smoothly. Um, you know, if, if you're a troublemaker, you know, that same thing will, will hurt you just as bad. Um, and, you know, in the end, this is, this is all about business. Everybody wants a machine that runs, runs smoothly. Um, you know, so word of, of a smooth running machine gets out. Um, so I think that that's very important. Um, Scott is, you know, along the same lines. He's got a lot of the same people that he's worked with before. And, it, you know, if you follow the names in the credits, you're going to see a lot of this, you know, four or five names that kind of pop up together on, on various projects. I think what was brilliant about what Scott and, and everyone who worked on Station Eleven did is they crossed the chasm between um, the book and and the, the television or, or, or movie production. And we've talked about this before, about how that's e extremely challenging. And for a lot of people, uh, whatever appears on the screen is not going to be, in their opinion, as good as what they've manufactured inside of their head. Like their imagination is, is very powerful and people become disappointed. And I, and I feel like th this this show in particular they crossed that chasm. They, 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 Scott and his team did it. it. It's phenomenal. It's got the same flow. It's got the same vibe. It's got the same aesthetics. 
that the book did. But I, I want to circle back to something Zach mentioned, and I totally agree. I, I think him and I were both too heavily focused on plot uh, earlier on in our career, um, and, and we learn and we grow, and I'm much more character-focused now than I've ever been. But I wonder if there's just an advantage that that television producers and filmmakers have that, that novelists don't. Because yeah. how much of that characterization is coming through facial expressions, tone of voice, um, appearance, like these are all things that, that we, we just don't have those tools at, at our disposal. So how do you compensate for that? Not like having, having as a novelist, how do you compensate for not having those tools that the filmmaker does? I, I know one of the things that I've learned is to actually not mention them as, as a writer, like in, in, your, in your text. Um, the more you point out, like every time you physically put those words down on the page, you're taking something away from the reader's imagination. So, you know, whether it's hair color or it's a facial tick or it's, you know, language, um, there's certain things you can put out there, but the, if you do too much, you know, you're, you're basically taking away what, you know, the imagination creates. And that machine, the imagination is the most powerful thing that, that's out there. Um, you, you don't want to handicap it. Um, I, I think, you know, like Lincoln Lawyer, I, I brought that up at the beginning of this, is a you know, fantastic movie. Um, you know, but Matthew McConaughey, to me, is one of the main reasons that's a fantastic movie. So if you take him out and you sub in somebody else, like I've read the book too, you know, and the character is, you know, it's a great character, but it's a very different character from the one Matthew McConaughey played in that. Um, so, you know, a lot of that just comes down to casting. And that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because I believe there's a series coming out, and I think it's on Amazon for Lincoln Lawyer. Um, it's obviously it's not Matthew McConaughey playing the parts. So it's going to be somebody else. Um, you know, Reacher right now is another one. You know, if, if you've seen the you know the Tom Cruise movies, you know, obviously Tom Cruise was a very different personality and, and person, you know, physically and, and every, you know, all across the board from the, the character on the book. Um, the one that I think in the Amazon series, which I haven't watched yet, but like physically just seeing the commercials, looks very much like the the Reacher you would picture from the books. Um, you know, so they're taking that in a totally different direction. So you know, is that going to work? Is it not going to work? You know. It, really hard to say yeah i just started watching the amazon reacher series and and i would say that it's much closer to the to the voice in inside of child's books than than the uh than the movies were yeah but the strange thing like i like the tom cruise movies you know like you know so like he he just brings a certain charisma to it that you know it changes it though you know obviously jack reacher is a very different person when somebody that's you know he's like five foot nothing beating up on all these people uh, but he still sells it you know in, in a way that makes it realistic so you know a lot of that comes down to casting yeah, I think for me, it's 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 really about uh, making your making characters relatable, and I think there's a lot of ways you can do that in your story. Um, now, obviously, with some genres, that's a little harder. Like if it's a superhero or something, but there's even still ways to do that. But for me, like blending in that character backstory without info dumping and such, and you know, make them really relatable and give them you know problems and flaws and all that sort of thing, and and watching them overcome those things despite it is is for me a big is, is a big part I, I'll come back to something else you said JT which I thought was interesting like you talked about how how well they encompass the book well just hearing him talk in the interview he was the perfect person for this I mean he has he has a love for Broadway and for theater um, he is very uh, you know he teaches a class on emotions and art I mean Scott was perfect for station 11 because I think um, you know, one thing that uh, gets lost when I'm talking to some of my friends who are into post-apoc and stuff with this series is like, and, and you even kind of brought this up in the interview, Station Eleven is not a is not a post-apocalyptic genre story. This is an instance where post-apoc is the setting, and this is really 
a drama is really what it is. And uh, even the novel, the novel is a literary drama. It's not a post-apocalyptic genre fiction book. Um, and, uh, and it's, yeah, like it, he was perfect for, to set that mood about, you know, how, how big, um, you know, theater and stuff and Hamlet and all that plays in this story of, of these group of characters who were fighting to keep art alive at the end of the world, like, and still be able to entertain people despite the world falling apart and all this stuff that's going on around them. Yeah, honestly, that just shows how all these different pieces have to come together perfectly. Because imagine yeah. if this got optioned by Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. the, this could have just as easily been a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. You know, yeah. and, and obviously a very different thing. And, you know, Scott's not somebody who appeared on screen at all. Like, you know, unless you're watching the credits or you're really digging in, you don't really know his name when you're, when you're watching that, that show. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, probably had one of the biggest influences over that entire production, you know, out of, out of anybody in there other than maybe the people on screen. Um, and you know, like that's just one more widget, one more piece that had to fit into that puzzle, and like everything just had to al align perfectly. It's got to be a perfect storm in order for one of these shows to come together like this. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a gorgeous production uh, from a stellar book. Scott is a, is brilliant at what he does. Uh, it was uh, it was such a pleasure to talk to him and kind of gets the you know the inside scoop on, on that. And um, I strongly recommend it if if you haven't read the book or seen the show do one of one or both because it, it is truly fantastic storytelling regardless of genre all right so that brings us to uh next week who do we have coming up there jd this one's going to be fun too we've got brad Meltzer coming on um number one new york times bestseller of uh, thrillers um he's also got a really cool children's line of books um out um I, and, and it's basically they're all based on famous characters or famous people in, in history um, I am Amelia Earhart, I am Abraham Lincoln. Um, so like a really cool way to teach your, your child about history. Um, and if you watch a lot, you know, television, he had a show called Decoded, um, which he actually hosted, which was a lot of fun. And I think there's, there's a big push to bring that back. I'm not sure if that's, that's happening yet. Uh, but his latest book, it's called The Lightning Rod. It's a sequel to his, his follow-up, or it's a follow-up um, from last year's Escape Artist. Um, and it comes out March 8th. Um, so it's gonna be on uh, next week, Brad Meltzer. Yeah, he's he's a he's a history geek, so I'm really looking forward to t to talking to him. All right, well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.